Hey, everybody. Hope you're doing well, Steph. We are off to the mall with Isabella, because all she wants to do is a walk, walk, walk. And uh, she has uh, become less interested in the library and its infinite tool of doodads and hazards. And now she is only interested in walking because she's learning how to walk, which, again, every time she learns a fundamental new skill... It's as exciting for her as if we, you and I, had learned how to fly. Wouldn't that be all we wanted to do all day? And that's that's the lay of the land. So I wanted to talk about an idea that I've been, oh, it has been cooking, von Brothing, in the back of my brain. Lo, these many months, in fact, over 18 months. And I think it's finally coming to a state where it's usable. And that is, I've used the metaphor, of course, of uh, the state as a livestock farmer. And uh, I think it's really, really important to explore that metaphor because I actually don't think it's a metaphor. <laughs> like, fundamentally, I don't think it, I think it's an analogy. It's a direct analogy. I don't think that it is actually a metaphor. And so let's look at uh, what, uh, what the state does and why and look at it through the harvesting of uh, tax resources, fundamentally tax and obedience resources. That is uh, what... Um, uh, what would be necessary to understand. You can't understand the state if you don't understand why it's doing what it's doing, and you can't understand why it's doing what it's doing unless you understand that it's all about the harvesting of tax resources. So uh, let's look at um, some of the basics sort of chronologically. Now, I was surprised. You know, it, was, it was interesting to me. It was very interesting to me that healthcare up here in Canada is largely a massive bag of crap. And uh, you, you can't get any help. And it, we were talking to, Christina and I were talking to a couple when we were in Mexico who were Canadian. And the woman, she had a problem with her foot. And it's basically taken her three years and she still doesn't have the surgery scheduled. It took a year to get a reference. Sorry, it took a, a year to find a specialist who then referred her to another specialist. It took a year for that. And now that specialist said you need this operation and she's been waiting more than a year for it. And uh, it's a problem, right? I mean, you, you, you become really in shackles because you're almost like you don't want to leave the country in case you get the call. The surgery is, you know, in three days kind of thing. So it really is. Uh, and she's been suffering with this foot problem for uh, for three years. I mean, it's just it's a, it's a massive bag of contemptible fail. And um, uh, and yet, and I thought about this when I was in the hospital, uh, and I've, I've never been, I mean, I've been lucky enough with my health. I've never actually been in a hospital. I mean, I had some stitches, cut my thumb earlier this year. Uh, no, late last year. And uh, but I've never, I've never spent a night in a hospital. I, I've just been very, very lucky with my health. I mean, it's not all luck, but it's you know, obviously a large, large degree of it is luck. And yet, we actually got really good care when Isabella was being born. I would say we we got you know twenty four hour nurse, just one in to come away. We, we now we had to pay for a private room, and that was sort of ridiculous. Um, but nonetheless, and it was like seven hundred and fifty bucks for two or three nights in a private room. Oh, it was just crazy. All the taxes we pay, right? You'd think that they could manage that. But the care, I will say, was really proactive and really good. And when you think about that, well, why is it that uh, uh, some old lady is uh, waiting three years to get a surgery to relieve pain in her foot, and yet we're getting really good care when Isabella comes along? Well, look at it from a resource standpoint. It profits the state if there are children. The state needs children in the same way that a livestock farmer needs to breed his cattle. The state needs children, which is why uh, the state is uh, interested in the health and well-being uh, of the birth of, of children. 
I think that's really, really important. That helped me to really sort of grasp it, that a, a farmer, you know, if the cow is just limping a little bit and is still producing a lot of milk, the farmer is not really going to give a shit, right? But uh, when the cow has been inseminated and gone through labor and is producing another cow, right, another revenue source, then the farmer is going to call all kinds of vets to come over and uh, do strange prison things to the cow up to their elbows. That's because the baby cow is a resource that the farmer wishes uh, wishes to protect. Because if the um, uh, if the uh, if the if the if the cow dies, like if the calf dies, then uh, that's a lot of wasted resources and energy. So I think that's uh, that's something that's really important to understand. And in socialized countries, to my knowledge, uh, I looked a little bit of this up. Uh, people are generally satisfied with the quality of care that they get when they're having their babies. There are way too many C-sections, according to some reports, but n- nonetheless, uh, the state is very interested. And you can't understand the good care uh, around birth unless you understand the livestock management uh, aspect. Now, the other thing, of course, that occurs is that, uh, you know, reasonably intelligent human beings who are actually the most productive in many ways of the livestock do not breed well in captivity. And uh, as the amount of control uh, goes up, uh, state control and state power goes up in society, you get some significant problems because the more intelligent people say to themselves, well, crap, I mean... (laughs) Why would I want to have a child? I mean, even if I I do want to have a child, why would I want to have a child? Because what's going to happen to me? Well, um, both myself and my wife are going to have to work. And because of that, we're not going to spend very much time with our children. You know, maybe an hour or two a day or three if you get up crushingly early. But a couple of hours a day with our kids, if we're lucky, and it's going to add a lot to our stress uh, because we're going to have to arrange for childcare. It's going to add a lot to our expenses. So it's going to be uh, sleepless nights, physical pain, stress, expense for what? An hour or two or maybe three, if we're lucky, uh, with our kid. And a lot of the time with our kid is going to be, uh, you know, some of the uh, less fun maintenance stuff, you know, like feeding. Uh, feeding's okay. It's not a lot of fun. Bathing, uh, okay. A bit stressful, though, especially when the babies are young because you got to make sure they don't you know, slip or whatever. Whatever. But, uh, you know, we're not going to be playing patty cake. Uh, a lot of the time that I'm going to spend is going to be dull animal maintenance on, on the children. And uh, so I'll get my weekends and so on, and, and that'll be fun. But the cost-benefit, if you've got any reasonable brains at all, in a modern statist 50% taxation, two-parents-working ha- uh, country, the arguments for having children, if you've got any kind of rational calculation, the arguments for having children get weaker and weaker. And... So what does the state do? Well, there's generally a two-pronged approach. Uh, the, the first is it will provide some cash incentives for uh, for having babies, right? So it'll provide some bonuses. In South Korea, I think they've just recently started giving people off, uh, making sure they go home Wednesdays at 7 p.m. in order to breed. Uh, they will provide uh, in Canada up to a year off. Uh, and you understand, like a year off is pretty sad. If you're in the public sector, it's really lucrative. But it's pretty sad if you're in the private sector, you sort of get you know, 1500 I think 12 or 1500 bucks a month. and uh, But you get up to a year where you can't be fired and, and all this kind of stuff, right? So they will provide some cash incentives to get the livestock uh, to breed because the cost benefit of uh, breeding goes down as state power uh, increases because you both have to work in order to pay the government. Uh, you got this, in a sense, massive palimony to go to the government. And so it's less, less, uh, there's less of an enticement to, um, to have kids. So the government's going to have to pay you. And that, of course, becomes a vicious circle. The more they pay people, sorry, the more they pay people to have children, the more they have to raise taxes, which means the less people want to have children, which means the more you have to pay people to have children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, that's the one aspect that they do. Now, another thing they do that I think is quite interesting. And uh, I'm not saying this is, I mean, this goes all the way back to, um, 
Jane Austen and, and Samuel Richardson uh, and and before. But uh, the other thing is uh, is the uh, the myth of the romantic comedy, right? The myth of the romantic comedy uh, is is something that's a staple, right? This this dream that romantic love, which is a wonderful statist concept, uh, which is not to say there's no such thing as romantic love. It's just the way that it's portrayed. And I've been meaning to do a podcast on romantic comedies. Uh, for quite some time, uh, and uh, I will get around to that at some point, so forgive me if I sort of skimp the argument here, but uh, that the sole purpose of life, the sole happiness and joy in life, uh, is not self-actualization, uh, wisdom, education, virtue, courage, all the things which are under your control, but it's meeting somebody you can share your seed with, settle down with, have marriage, have a family, and so on. And all these romantic comedies are all about, you know, life is nothing until you have somebody who's willing to sleep with you on a regular basis. And that of, that propaganda for essentially procreation uh, is, uh, is pretty fundamental to a state of society. And uh, you can see... Uh, some very interesting things have occurred in the romantic comedy since the 1940s, when the sort of Hepburn and, and uh, Tracy uh, and uh, other um, actors, there was, you know, the t- strong, tough, competent female. And now, I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, romantic comedies are like two metaphorical steps above pedophilia, because the women are so retarded and childlike that it's, uh, it's hard to imagine that any man of any self-esteem would want to end up with somebody as neurotic and insecure and childish as... Bridget Jones or uh, the heroine in the Sophie Kinsella novels, Shopaholic and so on. I mean, they are, they're functionally retarded and, and essentially childish, childlike. Uh, again, a bit of an insult to children, but um, uh, they have nothing. It's the Betty Boop thing, right? Uh, it is sort of functional pedophilia because it's a child in a woman's body. Uh, they're always physically clumsy and, uh, and oops, and, you know, titter-headed and all. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And this is a long way. This is not really supposed to be the fruit of feminism, but uh, what it does is it encourages men to uh to want to procreate because it portrays women as uh you know simpletons with vaginas right oh no no problem you're always going to be in charge and and so on right that's uh uh ridiculous of course but it is a uh, it's a common a stereotype and myth so common that it's really really hard to see so you want to continually pump out the propaganda around uh sexualization and the the joys of romantic uh, love and marriage is the most beautiful thing and so on. You want to have that propaganda so that your your cattle will breed. You have to kind of give them that. So after sort of marriage and birth, you have, uh, of course, you need to get a hold of the children as, as soon as possible. And uh, up here in Canada, because uh, working families, which means enslaved families, right? Uh, working families are uh, very, very uh, under the gun as far as childcare goes. We were just, uh, Christina and I took Isabella to an, a play center yesterday uh, where they have like rabbits and, and, and uh, budgies and mice and slides and uh, it's, it's a great deal of fun and she, she really likes it there. And uh, it was like Grandmother Central. And uh, I was chatting with one of the grandmothers and saying, man, this is, I said, you know, I'm, I'm 43 and uh, it's, it's a lot of work to keep up with Isabella. I mean, kudos to you. And she's like, oh, it's exhausting, but what can I do? My kids have to work, so I have to take care of my grandkids. I don't want strangers taking care of them. And she said, I'm sort of, I'm right in the middle, right? I'm like, the, the circle is complete. I mean, I got a, a wheelchair my, my, in the backseat of my car. I have a wheelchair for my own aging mother, and I have two car seats for my grandchildren who I have, I think, three or four days a week. Uh, and that's just it's brutal on the on the grandparents. I mean, it's it's, uh, it's. I mean, I am looking forward to be a grandparent someday. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, but it's uh, you know, it's a full time gig. Uh, you know, I feel somewhat creaky at the moment. Uh, I can't imagine in sort of twenty five years what that's going to be like. So it's brutal on the uh, on the grandparents. And uh, 
I think creates a lot of sort of family family tension. And we know a lot of people where the grandmother is the de facto childcare provider, or the grandmother and grandfather. It's mostly the grandmother, um, and that's that's really rough intergenerationally, familially, and it really is very tragic for the parents who have the, the inconvenience and expense, which are significant. The in- expense not so bad. The inconvenience of having children is monstrous. You have no idea. And the only compensation, and it is by far an effective compensation for the inconvenience, is the joys of the time that you spend with them, uh, watching them grow and teaching and learning. And if you don't get that much during the day because you're at work and they're doing all the functional shit, well, it's just not a very good deal. And uh, and of course, it's it's bad for the uh, for the progress of parenting, right? To have the grandparents who come from a more primitive parenting time um, parenting the grandchildren. Uh, it's a skipping a generation of at least some progress and enlightenment. And uh, I could see this with the grandmothers. They had a very, very archaic style of parenting at this place. You know, just barking orders and, and afraid of conflict and overbearing and uh, no interaction, just management and don't fall and barking, you know, yelling orders and so on. Um, and you could see the effect on the kids. They were all, you know, hyper and dissociated. And, and one of the girls just pushed Isabella over to get past and Isabella sort of went spinning on the ground, literally. And the girl didn't pause or stop or turn back or apologize. So, ah. Anyway, we can get into that another time. But um, uh, so you you have to sort of sell all this stuff, and then you have to get your hold get a hold of the children as soon as possible. So here in Canada, sorry to come back to my original point. Here in Canada, they're setting up daycare uh, for uh, babies. Right, basically the state will get them after a, a year, and that is uh, of course very important. Um, of course, it doesn't cost the state anything. They're just taxed and go into debt. And it's something that's desperately needed by people because, you know, more state power always solves the problems of earlier state power. And so the government will get its hands on the children even before the age of five, uh, and whether that's coinc- coincidental or not with the new recognition that by five the personality is largely formed, so the government wants them younger. Uh, I think that is uh, something that is uh, perhaps coincidental. I'm certainly not saying it's consciously planned, but, but nonetheless, it's there. Well, you want to get a hold of the kids as quickly as possible because the most effective and productive human livestock are those who self-attack, are those who self-enslave, uh, as they talk about in RTR. And those uh, children, uh, sorry, those people, you have to get them early. You have to propagandize them hard and early about the virtue of state and uh, patriotism towards the society and uh, taxes, the necessity of taxes and the friendliness of police and, you know, all of the inevitable statist garbage that is sort of jammed down our throats when we're children uh, to the point where eventually, I guess, like Jesus wafers, it starts to taste good. And so you will see an ever-increasing uh, or an ever-encroaching governmental involvement with the young. Uh, and that's, that's, I think, kind of inevitable in, uh, in, a, statist, uh, in a statist society.